This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, real and unreal. R.J. Cutler and Bo Williman are our guests on what promises to be a special hour on the intersection of Washington, filmmaking, the media business, and television. R.J. and Bo have both spent lives not far from campaigns. R.J. was producer of The War Room, the icon of the documentary genre that injected James Carville and George Stephanopoulos into the national consciousness. His latest work, The World According to Dick Cheney, premieres on Showtime on March 15th. He's given me a sneak peek, and I have lots of questions. With Bo, I'm a little behind the curve. The first 13 episodes of his show, House of Cards, were uploaded to Netflix on February 1st, and ever since, millions of new fans have been binging on the feast of Kevin Spacey's soliloquies. I'm finally caught up, but there's no one around the water cooler to talk to about the implosion of the Russo campaign. But first, we welcome from Los Angeles my old friend R.J. Cutler, whose documentary The World According to Dick Cheney is set to debut on Showtime. R.J., welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Perhaps if we had to be anywhere, it wouldn't be in New York or L.A., but rather on a fast-moving river in Wyoming where you caught up with the former vice president. What was it like to take stock of his life against that backdrop? Well, it was interesting to uh, conduct the interview, which we did with him for this film. Uh, It was actually five hours of interview each day for four days, so a total of 20 hours. Uh, and it was interesting to do it in, in his home in Wyoming because that's where he grew up. And uh, as you know, the, the West has a special meaning to him. It's, uh, he was a representative for 10 years from, from Wyoming. And, and so it kind of grounded the, the interview in a, certain, uh, in, in, a, in a certain place that I thought was very valuable. And when we went uh, fishing with him on the fifth day, he, uh, he was actually fly fishing for the first time since he had had his heart transplant. So, so it, 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 it turned out to be a really, uh, a really interesting place to be conducting the interview. But, of course, far more important than all of that was the content of the conversation itself, which is what drives the film. Certainly, RJ. Uh, but the setting and the music and the fact that a person like Dick Cheney would open up to R.J. Cutler is is very interesting in itself. And I remember you and I had a very early conversation. I'm not sure at what stage of the production process, but looking for some production help and some research help. Uh, how did it come to pass that you would be allowed to come to Wyoming and spend those five days and have that kind of access with the former vice president? Well, I, I went there uh, essentially at his invitation. I, I wrote him a letter asking if, uh, if he would be interested in, in participating in the film. Uh, and I explained to him that I wanted to make a film about him because as far as I'm concerned, he's as significant a non-presidential political figure as this country has ever known. Uh, enormously influential and impactful, whether one agrees with him or disagrees, whether one loves him or hates him, and everyone seems to fall into one side of uh, well, one of those descriptions or the other. 
uh, and and I wanted to make I wanted to tell his story in a way that uh, that history I believe would view it, and I wanted his voice to be at the center of that story, and and for his point of view to be at the center of his story. I think with a figure like Dick Cheney, if you're going to understand the Bush years, the uh, George W. Bush years, the years after September 11th, and how this country conducted its domestic and foreign policy, you need to understand who Dick Cheney was, what he believed, why he did what he did, and how he did what he did. And this is a kind of remarkable story of a man who very early in his career uh, determined that he would... Uh, he would acquire power by associating himself with those who had been elected to power. And in the course of this film, you get to see the ways in which he did that over the course of a remarkable and highly impactful four-decade career. Let's hear a little bit of the former vice president in his own words. What's your favorite virtue? Integrity. What do you appreciate most in your friends? Honesty. Your idea of happiness? A day on the uh, south fork of the snake with a fly rod. Your idea of misery? Loss of a uh, family member. What's your favorite food? Spaghetti. What do you consider your main fault? My main fault? Um. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about my faults, I guess would be the answer. Were these icebreaker questions, RJ, that you used to get the thing going on day one of the five-day interview set? Uh, I actually think I went in with those particular questions on day three. Uh, we had spent the first couple of days speaking about the vice president's career, his early years, his youth in Wyoming, his struggles at Yale University, where... Uh, where he actually uh, uh, first had his scholarship removed and then was asked to leave. I mean, essentially, he failed out. Um, the years after that, which were marked by, you know, a, a, a modest, I don't even want to say modest achievement. I mean, he was not fulfilling his potential in any way and, in fact, got himself into trouble, arrested twice for drunk driving and, you know, there were struggles, great struggles, before he then determined to turn his life around at the at the kind of behest of his then-girlfriend and future wife, uh, Lynn, um, and, uh, and and his, his early years pursuing first political science as, a, as an area of study and then going to Washington, D.C. to uh, see what it was like in, in practical terms, to get some practical experience before returning to the University of Wisconsin to get his doctorate and, and, and become a political science professor. Of course, he never made it back to the University of Wisconsin because when he went to Washington, he stumbled upon Donald Rumsfeld, and the two of them became this kind of extraordinary dynamic duo, a mentor and student, Rumsfeld being the, the kind of rising star in the Republican Party who um, who spotted Cheney very early on and determined that that they would work together and uh, and 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 they did they partnered up it was in a way the rest is history having talked all of our way through that and through the Ford administration 
uh, in the first couple of days of our uh, interviews and having had the vice president tell me how he and Rumsfeld essentially gutted the Ford administration in its early months and took it over, Rumsfeld becoming the secretary of defense and Cheney becoming the youngest chief of staff in American history. Um, I felt on day three that it would be interesting to, to, to talk at the very beginning of the interview not about kind of the mechanics of, of, of political maneuvering, but more personal things. And, uh, and I went in and asked him a series of questions that you just played, and, and he, of course, was, uh, was open to answering them. What he, what he couldn't answer by his own reckoning, however, was uh, what he considered to be his own greatest flaws. He just, uh, it seemed to be something that he had, he had not really considered. And some of the early commentary, RJ, about your film is that while uh, your voice or your opinion doesn't come shining through, the lack of an ability to recognize what are clearly those flaws in retrospect is, a, is a, the, the unsaid coda to this film. How much preparation did you do to research to understand who Dick Cheney was before you came to Wyoming? Well, you know, it was very interesting with this film because uh, you asked earlier how I got Vice President Cheney to agree to participate. One of the key pieces of strategy for me was was patience, uh, because I had been advised very early on that 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 if I really wanted him to say yes, I had to be waiting. I had to be willing to wait till he was ready to say yes. That I couldn't kind of put a time lock on it, but rather I had to say. You know, whenever you're ready to do this, we'll do it. Well, it turned out that it was seven months after I initially reached out to him that he finally invited me to come to the Washington area to sit down with him and discuss what I was looking to do. During those seven months, we were researching and looking at archival footage and reading pretty much everything that had been written about the vice president's career and, and coming to understand his whole history and the relationship with Rumsfeld and his years in Wyoming and his years at Yale and his years, early years in Washington and then his career as a congressman, his, his run for the presidency, his kind of a very abbreviated run for the presidency, his time in the first Bush, you know, the George H.W. Bush administration, and then his relationship and the whole history of his time in the, in the George W. Bush uh, administration and and that's a tremendous amount. You know, this is an epic career that spans yeah. four decades. So so uh, so that was a very very valuable period of time. And I, my crack team of of researchers and uh, my my wonderful uh, editor and co-director Greg Fenton and our extraordinary producer Francis Gasparini, Ryan Gallagher, our incredible researcher. And I were really digesting all of this material and speaking about how we might structure the film. And the big breakthrough for us was realizing that structuring it around Cheney-Rumsfeld relationship would uh, be the, the clearest way to tell the story. Um, let's hear another clip from the film, and then I want to get back to some of those early years for Cheney in Wyoming, Yale, Wisconsin, and then to Washington. People say, well, you know, how did you feel? That's not the way I think about it. I was thinking about the threat that we were faced with. I was thinking about what we had to do to preserve the legitimacy of the government, to make certain there were successors in line ready to go if the president and I were taken out. RJ, it's a fascinating film. You said that in your media diet would include uh, This Week with George Stephanopoulos and Meet the Press. They don't usually come with a soundtrack 
or archival footage or family photos. How important in the production process is, as you're trying to tell an hour and a half narrative, the theatrical elements of the documentary form, the music and the the images that you use often, the still, both the stills and the moving footage over what Cheney is telling you. Well, they're they're, they're very important. I mean, this is this, this isn't a news interview, uh, nor is it a newscast, nor is it a a television debate show. It's a it's a film. It's a it's a narrative work of cinema. Uh, it's 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 nonfiction, um, but it is uh, but it's first and foremost cinema. So if you ask you know how important are the elements of cinema in a in a in a cinematic work of art they're they're fundamental to it we're taking uh the viewer on a on a on a journey and uh and engaging the viewer in a in a uh in in the journey of narrative i mean it's as important to to our film as as the images and the music are to the godfather you know, uh, or or any other movie that you you will you will see in the theater and and on television. This film is made for Showtime, which which financed it. You know, we're, there are, there are partners on it, um, so it's not premiering in in movie theaters, but it was it was imagined as a work of cinema. R.J., in the telling of the story of Frost Nixon, you know, David Frost has a certain window of opportunity to go out to uh, California and talk with former President Nixon. And as he's learning things in the first day, he and his team are looking at their notes and and working on the agenda and the questions that they want to bring up the next day. What was it like uh, after filming broke on each of those successive days with Vice President Cheney and the, the sort of thinking that you had to do to yourself to say, well, this has brought us uh, into a new area that, I, that we didn't know a lot before and we want to explore this further. How did you sort of redo the playbook each night? Well, it's a, it's a very interesting question. I mean, you know, whenever you're, I think, doing something like this, it isn't, it, with any film, whether it's an interview-based film or a, or a cinema verite film, for me, the, the, I always say the directing of this, these movies is, is what happens in the conversation that you have in the bar at the end of the day after your day of shooting, and and certainly uh, that was true in this case. There was a, a long form seminal article on Dick Cheney in the New Yorker early on in the Bush years. Uh, I just remember reading it and understanding life in Wyoming for him a little bit more. But your film, The World According to Dick Cheney, brought home so much more the rare opportunity that he had to go to Yale and the the way in which that was squandered and then the way in which he with Lynn rebuilt his life and eventually got got to Washington working with Don Rumsfeld what do you think will surprise people who don't know much about Dick Cheney about let's say the first third of your film well it is very interesting the these early kind of life disappointments that he has he's a a big fish in a small pond as a high school student in, in, in tiny Casper, Wyoming, where his view of the world and his value system is, is definitely established, uh, if, although not his politics. His parents are New Deal Democrats. Um, the way in which they engage in the world and uh, this, the, the, the kind of quiet outsider from the West world view 
is very much established there. Then he gets a scholarship, and you're right, it's a very rare opportunity from somebody from his background at the time and from his part of the country at the time uh, to attend Yale, where he is uh, he's not successful at all. He's, he's intimidated uh, by, the, by the private school senator's sons and the, those who are kind of uh, to the manner born, which he is not. And uh, uh, his way of coping with it is to kind of find a group of drinking buddies and, uh, you know, and binge. And it's, it's, uh, it gets him into trouble in terms of his academics. At first he loses his scholarship, and by the time his sophomore year is meant to be over, he's asked to leave. He goes back to Wyoming and becomes a power linesman, laying, he joins the union, lays power lines, you know, in the parts of Wyoming that aren't really settled, and, and again, is drinking himself to sleep every night. Um, and it's it's kind of a startling uh, origin story for somebody who eventually becomes uh, so ambitious, so driven by a quest for power, so, so canny in the ways and the machinery of government. This is not someone who, who uh, seemed to have that ambition uh, at any cost until he um, he decides to turn his life around in his early 20s. It's a, it's a kind of startling turnaround. I mean, we hear, we've heard uh, this, this story in a certain form about other politicians, but with very, very different backgrounds. I mean, the idea that George, George W. Bush sobered up at, at 40, you know, and he was really kind of a party boy with, with these rich, powerful, you know, parents and influential family members is, that's, that's, that's not what this story is. This is somebody who clearly had a tremendous amount of potential, but for whatever reason chose to let it go, but then chose to re-attain it and re-pursue it. And that's a, that's a striking story, uh, especially given the impact, ultimately, that he, that he has. And, and perhaps it's, it, it goes a long way to explaining his 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 ability to be comfortable as such an outsider, um, somebody who is so committed only to what he believes is is the right way. I mean, you know, I I think one of the major themes that this film explores, I and and what I mean it to be exploring, is the role that conviction plays in a democracy. I I, I believe strongly that that our government, our system of government, requires men and women of, of conviction for it to succeed. We need people who believe in things uh, in order for the democracy to work. When, when, when our representatives don't believe in anything except getting themselves reelected or stopping the other side from accomplishing anything, that the, the, the gears of democracy grind to a halt, as we, I'm afraid, see far too often. R.J. Cutler, producer and director of The World According to Dick Cheney, premiering on Showtime on March 15th. I just want to leave you with, with in in talking about conviction, one clip from maybe 20 years prior, uh, my old friends George Stephanopoulos and James Carville from The War Room. I think we all know that, um, besides Bill Clinton, one person really gave his campaign focus. And one person wrote what I call a haiku about five months ago. Change versus more of the same. The economy's stupid. I think if you did a nexus, it would come up in about a thousand places. 
and don't forget health care. Um, you know, I, I was kidding James yesterday. I said he's about to pass from the role of regular human being into the role of a legend. And I think he really deserves it. Because probably for the first time in a generation tomorrow, we're going to win. And that means that more people are going to have better jobs. People are going to pay a little less for health care, get better care. And uh, more kids are going to go to better schools. Uh, so thanks. And so that was George Stephanopoulos toasting James Carville in the war room, also produced by R.J. Cutler. R.J., thinking back 20 years and the film that you made then and watching the spread of U.S. history for the next eight years under the Clinton years and then the eight years following that in the Bush years, what kind of legend eight years from now do you think Dick Cheney will have? Well, uh, that's a really interesting question and, and, um, and, and one we mean the film to, uh, to aid in, uh, aid in, um, in, in determining. I and mean, we, we definitely made uh, The World According to Dick Cheney in a way that we thought that history would consider him someone who had this enormous influence, um, someone who around whom the world changed dramatically, and because of whom the world changed dramatically uh, while he was uh, in office, uh, and yet someone, uh, I think, whose own view of the world did not change at all, uh, because he was so singularly uh, committed to it. Um, what history decides about him in terms of uh, whether his policies and the decisions that he made and that he led others to make um, were good for the country and good for the world or not, I, I leave it to others to uh, determine. But there no, there's no question in my mind that, that the, the way in which he... Uh, acquired his power and used his power provides gr great insights not only into uh, what makes democracy succeed but also uh, what challenges we present and we face in this uh, in this great experiment and so it's a it's a, a, a he's a very very rich resource for uh, I think deepening our understanding of of the, the potentials and pitfalls of, uh, of the democratic government. And, and for that reason, we were really excited to be making a film about him. We, of course, were really grateful that he agreed to participate so fully in it, and, um, and we're so eager to be sharing it with, uh, with the world starting uh, on March 15th on Showtime. So I hope that answers your question. It does, RJ. Uh, next week, uh, March 15th on Showtime, The World According to Dick Cheney, produced and directed by RJ Cutler. RJ, you have given us uh, at least uh, almost two hours of reflection to chew on with, uh, with the film that you have published and that you've produced, and also the rest of that 20 hours of reflection, I think, is a major historical document that will, that will be studied for decades. Thanks so much for doing that, and best of luck with the film. Thanks so much. It's great to talk to you. Bo Willimon is our special guest for a compelling conversation on the intersection of Washington, the media, filmmaking, and the business of television. When it comes to politics, Bo knows. 
He's a veteran of the campaigns for Chuck Schumer, Hillary Clinton, Howard Dean, and Bill Bradley, and he'll join us in studio later in the program. But first, some commentary on the visuals from the week that drove Washington's B-roll. A real-life filibuster. We don't need your stinking cloture votes. I don't see eye-to-eye with Senator Rand Paul on much, but I admire his endurance. Those watching the proceedings on C-SPAN were treated to a rare performance that cast the junior senator from Kentucky into a role better known by the performance of Jimmy Stewart as young Senator Jefferson Smith in Frank Capra's 1939, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. As USA Today reported, Paul fell more than 11 hours short of the record set by Republican Senator Strom Thurmond who protested the 1957 Civil Rights Act for 24 hours and 18 minutes. Paul joked he wanted to try to eclipse Thurmond, but he needed a bathroom break. And speaking of Jefferson, the Jefferson Hotel in Washington was the site this week of a rare polyoptic moment. No more White House state dining room for Barack Obama. President Obama breaking bread for a two-hour dinner with a dozen GOP senators. Will it do any good? Among the readouts offered, Nebraska's Senator Mike Johans said, quote, His goal is ours. We want to stop careening from crisis to crisis, solving every problem by meeting the crisis deadline. Today was a good stop, and we'll see what happens, so said Johans. Now, if Frank Underwood were in the White House, which may well be a year from now, the Jefferson might have taken a backseat to Freddie's Rib Shack for the combatants to chew on a half-rack with a side of slaw while they iron out their differences. But I couldn't possibly comment on that. Bo Willimon, on the other hand, could. So now, from the real-life Iago of recent history, we turn to the imaginary one of the here and now, the House Majority Whip, Representative Frank Underwood of South Carolina's 5th Congressional District, proud son of Gaffney, where you shouldn't slap a man chewing tobacco, and esteemed graduate of the Sentinel, we welcome to our microphones Frank's creator, showrunner Bo Willimon. Bo, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh. Wow. What's it been like the last month that this show has been available to Netflix viewers for you? Uh, it's been incredible. We didn't know what would happen on February 1st. We certainly hoped a lot of people would watch it. We didn't know how many would binge or if any would binge at all. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we had high hopes, but uh, I think they've exceeded you know, what's happened has exceeded all of our expectations. Uh, you know, I, I feel lucky that uh, I have season two to focus on so that, um, you know, none of it goes to my head. Uh, so we've been hard at work uh, over the past uh, couple months uh, trying to make season two even better than season one. Well, before we get to uh, to season two, let's talk about season one and creation of the pilot. I want to hear a little bit of Frank Underwood as he introduces himself uh, to his audience, to to us, the viewers, at the inaugural party uh, for President Walker. Check, check, check. Linda Vasquez, Walker's chief of staff. I got her hired. She's a woman, check, and a Latina, check. But more important than that, she's as tough as a $2 steak. Check, check, check. When it comes to the White House, you not only need the keys in your back pocket, you need the gatekeeper. As for me, I'm just a lowly House majority whip. I keep things moving in a Congress choked by pettiness and lassitude. My job is to clear the pipes and keep the sludge moving, but I won't have to be a plumber much longer. I've done my time. I've backed the right man. Give and take. Welcome to Washington. Bo Willowan, tell us about the creation of Frank Underwood. Uh, well, House of Cards is uh, based on a BBC miniseries that aired in 1990 starring Ian Richardson playing Francis Urquhart. 
uh, that was a total of 12 episodes over three years. And that itself was based on uh, novels written by Lord Michael Dobbs, who truly created Francis Urquhart, the character. Um, all that said, uh, when David Fincher approached me three years ago to work on this, uh, we both agreed that we wanted to do a complete reinvention. Uh, we wanted to steal a lot of great stuff from the BBC version in the novels, but we didn't want to feel uh, bound to them or limited by them. Uh, and certainly the world has changed quite a bit in the past 20-plus uh, years since the BBC version aired. Uh, add to that... F- Add to that the fact that we are setting the show in D.C. and you know we're dealing with American politics and American culture. It meant really thinking about Francis Underwood in a new way. Uh, first of all, we named him Underwood instead of Urquhart because I don't Urquhart know. It doesn't really work. Yeah, in the it's US a, show, that's a name of Scottish or, origin, um, and I, I haven't run across many Urquhart's or any uh, to speak of uh, here in the states. Uh, and then you, you know you start thinking about um, how is our guy uh, going to be quintessentially American. And I started with a very simple place. Uh, you quoted it earlier. There's a catchphrase from the BBC version. You very well might think that I couldn't possibly comment. And I wanted to keep that in a couple instances as an homage. Uh, but Americans don't speak that way idiomatically uh, unless uh, you take a South Carolina upcountry accent uh, and, and you put it in that person's mouth. You very well might think that I couldn't possibly comment. Then it, it rolls off the tongue. It works. So out of that very simple arbitrary choice, that led to Gaffney. Um, my dad's from South Carolina. I spent a lot of time down there, and he suggested Gaffney as the town. Uh, and you start thinking of the American mythology of anyone can be president. Anyone can come from nothing. Hope, uh, Arkansas. Yeah, come from a town called Hope and become president of the United States. And that made a lot more sense than Francis Urquhart, who came from priv- privilege and aristocracy. Uh, so layer by layer, he became our own. And then, of course, uh, completing the picture was Kevin Spacey himself. Uh, I don't think this show would be worth doing if, if we had, hadn't uh, gotten him on board. So thank God he did come on board. Let's get right to your main character, and then I want to come back to the origination. Let's hear uh, the person who plays Frank Underwood, Kevin Spacey, an actor who we've admired for decades, in the role that preceded, I think, his appearance on House of Cards as Shakespeare's Richard III. The thousand hearts are great within my bosom. Advance our standards, set upon our foes. March on, join bravely. Let us to in hell now. If not to heaven, then hand in hand to hell! David Milch, while he's writing Deadwood, in- incorporates a lot of Shakespearean tense t- uh, and, and pacing. As you're writing the pilot episode for House of Cards, are you thinking about both Kevin as Richard III and also as Shakespeare the Bard? Uh, absolutely. Uh, Richard III is one of the great plays, one of the great villains, uh, and Kevin was doing a nine-month world tour prior to shooting. Uh, so I had the great privilege to see him on closing night at the Old Vic in London uh, and closing night here in New York at, at BAM, uh, and it greatly influenced the writing. Uh, not just Richard III, but also Macbeth yeah. and Othello, uh, Othello Hamlet. Uh, you, you know, you, you can look at a lot of uh, Shakespeare's plays as inspiration for a story like ours. Uh, and in a lot of the conversations I first had with Kevin, um, we were referring to Richard III uh, consistently. So, uh, you know, one of the advantages to him being on that nine-month world tour as well is that it gave uh, it gave me uh, nine months to work with my writers to, to write the entire first season before we shot a single frame. So we knew everything we were doing in those 13 hours uh, before the cameras started rolling, and, and that was a luxury. Before we get to David Fincher coming to you, you guys approaching various outlets and then eventually coming to Netflix, tell us about your... Uh, Bo Willimon in the 90s, Columbia University, dabbling in politics. 
where did your sensibilities as a writer uh, come from? Your dad was in the Navy. What did your mom do? How did it, how did it end you up at Columbia? Uh, my dad spent 31 years in the Navy. In fact, his uh, last commission was at the Philadelphia shipyard where he was XO. So that's that's where that bit of the storyline comes from. I lived on that base. Uh, we moved to St. Louis after he retired and wanted to go to law school at WashU. And, and I had a great um, uh, upbringing in St. Louis. My my teachers there, I think, really instilled uh, a passion for the arts. Uh, I, I you and John Hamm. That's right. John Hamm and I went to the same high school. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, he was a senior, uh, and uh, he came back when I was uh, when I was a senior to teach drama with our great drama teacher Wayne Solomon. Um, I didn't take one of his classes. I was studying with Wayne, but we were both in uh, John Hamm and I were both in Stage Door together. I saw him recently at a at a Bros event and run into him from time to time. I'm so thrilled for all his success. He's so talented. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, when I came to New York to go to Columbia, I thought I was going to be a painter. I mean, that's what I majored in. Um, and I had I didn't take any writing classes. I didn't have any inkling that I'd be a writer. Were you living uh, like Zoe Barnes at the time? I, I was living in Columbia. Uh, Columbia dorms, which uh, if you've seen a few of them, <laughs> make make Zoe's apartment look envious, uh, <laughs> depending upon what your lottery ticket is. Uh, but uh, y- y- when I when I graduated, um, I, I had an impulse to write. I needed to do something different than painting. I, I, I needed to try something else, something I would fail at, just to sort of shake up the molecules. Uh, and I started uh, dipping my toe in writing for theater. Theater was something I always loved uh, and ended up... Uh, by hook or by crook getting into grad school at Columbia and, and really from that point on I knew that was my vocation that's where what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing but along comes Jay Carson what happens there so Jay Carson uh, who is a, a political uh, wunderkind of sorts um, uh, I met my freshman year at Columbia we were rowing crew together we both had hair down to our shoulders there's probably some damning photos um, from that time uh, but uh, he convinced me in the summer between junior and senior year to work on Chuck Schumer's campaign. And I had been politically interested, but no more than the average person. And and I said yes, mostly on a lark. I thought it'd be a fun thing to do. Well, it was an extraordinary campaign. Uh, Chuck came from seemingly out of nowhere uh, to defeat Geraldine Ferraro in the primary, uh, and then eventually uh, a very powerful incumbent, Alphonse D'Amato, in the general. Uh, And that adrenaline, uh, that sense of purpose, uh, the, the, the feeling you got from believing that you had changed the world in your own small way uh, was addictive. So, were, were you in Manhattan and New York City area most of the campaign, or did they deploy you around the state? All over. I mean, we were mostly based out of New York City. Uh, that's where Jane and I were. were both going to school at the time. Our classes suffered when we stopped going to classes. But, uh, uh, you know, there were times where they'd say, you got to get all these yard signs up to Albany by 6 a.m. tomorrow, hop in a van and do an overnight drive. So whether it's Rochester, Albany, Buffalo, um, Long Island, Westchester, you name it, we were all over the state. Any peach? moments like uh, Frank Underwood experienced uh, that back in Gaffney on your first New York's campaign? Uh, n- n- not necessarily a peachoid moment, but, um, you know, I think that the Kern debacle that happens, uh, there was something very similar. Uh, in the show, uh, Michael Kern is up for Secretary of State, and Francis maneuvers things in such a way that, that he's taking flack for comments he wrote in college uh, or, or may not have written at all uh, that make people, you know, uh, pro-Israel people angry, pro-Palestine people angry. Well, on the Schumer-Damato campaign, uh, D'Amato made a comment at a fundraiser, I believe in Flatbush, where he 
called uh, Chuck Schumer a potz head, which in Yiddish means a mm head, you know? And uh, and so... Post uh, in the Daily News have something to say about that. Yeah, so, I mean, in the, in the way that that was spun, uh, certainly we on the Schumer campaign used that to our advantage. Um, it could be construed as an anti-Semitic remark. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and D'Amato suffered terribly for it because at first he denied, I believe he denied saying it, but then there was proof that he had. Then he refused to apologize for it. Then he was forced to apologize. And seem, you know, almost overnight he lost 10 points. And that happened very close to the general election itself. And, and we won by du- double digits. That sort of moment um, certainly contributed largely uh, to the victory. Sidebar, were you shocked by Senator uh, Hagel uh, having the same tactics applied to him as as is in your episode two or three? Not shocked. Uh, I, I mean, th- these sort of things happen in politics all the time. There were a lot of people emailing or tweeting me saying, how did you know? And, and we're not prophetic. Uh, these sort of uh, scenarios, I think, are cyclical uh, in the political world. Uh, so a year and a half ago, when we were first working on this story, um, you could look to historical precedents, um, plenty of confirmation struggles uh, that have happened over the last several decades as inspiration. And the timing just so happened that uh, as the show was airing, the, the nation was witnessing one um, in real life. So you give up Albany and Buffalo for uh, Cedar Rapids and Des Moines and uh sign up with the Dean campaign. Why did you you and Jay uh, go west uh, to work for the Vermont governor? So uh, after I graduated from college, uh, I sort of stumbled down the path of the arts. Uh, but Jay launched into this meteoric career in politics. So he went on to work for uh, Bradley, for Hillary, and then eventually uh, Howard Dean. And at the ripe old age of 26, he was Dean's national spokesman for that presidential race. Uh, At the time, uh, I didn't have a lot going on, and Jay said, how about you come out to Iowa and work on press advance uh, with us? And I said, sure, why not? So I packed up, moved out to Des Moines, uh, and had both an exhilarating and uh, devastating experience. Exhilarating in that Dean was a a front runner. He was speaking out against the war in ways that no one else would. He had a a real uh, progressive following. Uh, and we really felt like this guy was going to get elected. Um, devastating when he came in such a distant third in Iowa and, and not too long after had to throw in the towel. Uh, so uh, when I got back to New York after that, uh, I was itching to write. I hadn't written anything in six months. And, and before, before you get back to New York, let's hear uh, how Governor Dean sounded that last night in Iowa. We're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! But Willimon, how long has it been since you've heard the Dean scream? Uh, it's been a while. I helped set up that event, in fact. Uh, and what's unfortunate about what you just played like so much of the media did, uh, I believe it was 672 times in yep. one news cycle, is that uh, it's not really reflective of the event itself. No, not at all. Um, because, uh, I mean, not to get too technical here. but No, let's you, do it. This is polyopolis. <laughs> we get very technical. When you, when you, you, set, you have toe marks in one of your episodes <laughs> at the beginning. That is a very technical uh, attribute of your show. So let's let's talk about well, it. Well, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners are aware, uh, 
the advanced team will will use something called a malt box. Yeah, of course. Uh, and the malt box is where all of the news organizations put their feeds into so that you can have one microphone. And that one microphone, um, it, it prevents you from having that giant bouquet of microphones that you saw mm-hmm. in the 80s or before. Uh, and what that one microphone also does is create a very localized radius of uh, sound that it's picking up, meaning that anything more than a few feet away uh, uh, is on a much sort of lower level. Um, uh, and that's so the news organizations can get a clear sound bite uh, yep. to air on the 11 o'clock news. Um, what is And a nicer picture of the podium so you don't have 35 microphones at the podium. Absolutely. Uh, but what is uh, a little disingenuous about that is that if the energy and, and, and volume of the event in the crowd is a big part of the overall picture, that's not going to be picked up by the mic. So you could hear in that uh, audio clip you just played, you could hear the crowd in the background, but they were so loud at the actual event, you couldn't even hear Dean. So he was trying to scream over the crowd, which was screaming far louder than he was. Um, So out of context, of course, he looks a little unhinged. Um, But if you were in that room, it didn't seem that way at all. Uh, Now, there's a bigger issue, which is... uh, the narrative at that time was here's a guy who might not be electable, who um, might be a little uh, unhinged from time to time, uh, and who wasn't prepared uh, or 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 uh, had the gravitas to be president of the United States. Now that's a big narrative, and uh, the media doesn't construct those narratives. They're not they're not that powerful. What they tend to do. Uh, is the the best of journalists have a sense for what narrative is bubbling forth among um, the people. And then they find the stories that will confirm um, or address that narrative. So that narrative was already there. And if you look, and having spent uh, you know many, many a, a long day side by side with a candidate, there are clips, uh, audio, visual, um, photo stills, uh, dozens a day, which you could use out of context um, to uh, tell a story that is not necessarily, um, you know, uh, reflective of the event, but is reflective of the bigger narrative. And most of the times, those sort of dissolve into the mist because they're not out of context. They make no sense. Uh, but that, if if it hadn't been the dean scream, it would have been something else because that's a narrative people wanted to hear. You've said in retrospect that you had a sense either Jay did or Trippy did or Trisha did that that the uh, wheels might have been coming off the campaign earlier than a young advanced man might have felt in in Iowa. How did you reconcile going back to Washington that that the die had already been cast before the the votes might have been uh, tabulated in the caucus? Uh, I wasn't going back to Washington. That night I helped set up the event at the caucus and then I I quickly went to the airport to help set up the plane to New Hampshire. Right. I didn't personally know that he was going to lose that night. Jay told me in retrospect that at the very top levels they knew they were going to lose. I don't think anyone knew that they were going to lose as badly as they did. But a few weeks out, they they recognized that some of the numbers were off, and they we didn't have the on gr- the ground support in the state that um, you know the the leadership of the uh, campaign assumed that they had had. Um, the the big problem, of course, wasn't losing; it was losing so badly. Uh, and when we were on the flight to New Hampshire. Uh, all of us were bummed out that we had lost. We had no idea that the Dean Scream would take over the airwaves tomorrow, so no one was lamenting that fact yet. Uh, but, you know, it was just too much ground 
uh, to make up for when he had been the presumptive front runner with, at the time, uh, one of the biggest uh, budgets in, in primary history. Uh, so Jay told me later that it was very tough um, to maintain enthusiasm and, and a smiling face in those last couple of weeks in Iowa, knowing that they were going to take a big hit. Um, but I think everyone was shocked by by the uh, the margin. So after Schumer, after Hillary, after Bradley, and after Dean, it's time to get back to uh, your training and your art and your artistry. How do you make the segue back into play playwriting and and eventually what became Farragut North? Uh, so after the Dean campaign, I, after he threw in the towel in Wisconsin, I came back to New York. I hadn't written anything for a while, and. and uh, and politics was on the brain. I'd never worked on any of those campaigns as research. I never really thought about uh, dramatizing them. I truly was working on them because I wanted those people to win. Uh, but I felt that I knew this world now. Uh, and whatever I didn't know, I knew enough people in that world to answer my questions. Uh, so I began working on what became Farragut North, which later became the movie Ides of March. Uh, and uh, a few months later, I had my first draft. Um, and I, I spent the next few months rewriting uh, after that and sent it out to 40 theaters across the country, and they all turned it down. Uh, and so I put it away. Just for, just you photocopying and envelopes and lists of theaters? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't have... Uh, the way I made my living at the time was sort of by hook or by crook, odd jobs here and there, barista at a coffee shop, whatever I could do that uh, was the most mind-numbing work that wouldn't take up too much energy or time uh, so that I could save my brain and my time and my energy for writing. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I I believe I had a temp job at the time where I would use their photocopiers because it's expensive to run off all those plays, plays and I would use uh, their photocopiers and their FedEx account in order to send these things off. But it was just me uh, without an agent. And, uh, and you know, no one wanted to do it. So I, I think there was also a little bit of fatigue from the 04 campaign. Two years later, I signed up with my current agent, and he wanted to send it out. And I, uh, I said, good luck. I've sent it to a lot of theaters already. Uh, but he, he gave it a try, and um, uh, we got immediate responses from commercial theater producers in New York, uh, other theaters around the country. Sent it out to L.A. as simply a writing sample, hoping I'd get some meetings. And before I knew it, I got a call saying Warner Brothers wanted to option it uh, with Clooney and DiCaprio producing. And then things happened very quickly. How did it get sniffed at Warner Brothers, and how did it get into Clooney's and DiCaprio's hands? Well, there's, there's sort of uh, a contradictory stories from all those people as to who had it first. Uh, but uh, there was, a, at the time, a, uh, an, a young executive at Warner Brothers um, uh, Jesse Ehrman, who had gotten his hands on it and was really taken by it and passed it up to his boss, Kevin McCormick, who was a uh, VP production at the time. And Kevin had a discretionary fund and could option things without needing anyone's approval. Um, now, the the Smokehouse folks, Clooney's company and, and, uh, and DiCaprio's company, Appian, Appian Way, some of them will claim that they had it and gave it to Warner Brothers. But uh, I think it uh, it was just one of those weird sort of um, viral things where this play, for whatever reason, connected with some people in L.A. and and very quickly found its way into a lot of people's hands at the same time. Uh, and and uh, and then, of course, once uh, I teamed up with uh, Clooney and DiCaprio and Warner Brothers, uh, with those names attached, uh, suddenly the play made its way all over Hollywood and and. You know, there were a lot of meetings, a lot of things offered to me, and, and it opened up a lot of doors. Uh, there had been a lot of years leading up to that moment, a lot of hard work, uh, a lot of um, failure, 
but once that moment happened, uh, things things moved um, quicker than I ever could have imagined. One of those doors that opens is David Fincher and his team. How did that begin? Uh, about three years ago, I got a call from my agent saying Fincher would like to speak to you about working on House of Cards. I'd heard of the BBC version because I knew it was a, a cult classic. In, let's in let's the just UK. hear a little bit on e- of Ian Richardson as Francis Hurkett. Hi, Minister. Teddy, didn't realize you'd be here. Pull up a chair, Francis. Now, I've had a careful look at this uh, memorandum of yours. You're proposing a very radical change. I'd like you to tell me why. Well, uh... Just in general terms. All right. We have been in power longer than any party since the war. It's a new kind of challenge. We need to show that we are not stagnating, that we are capable of self-renewal. That's so good, isn't it? Yeah, Ian Richardson uh, did an astounding job in in the original BBC version. Um, Leading to trickle-down diplomacy. uh, Yeah, yeah. In the chief of staff's office uh, many years later for Francis Underwood. So I had not seen the BBC version, but obviously uh, had meant to see it for quite a while. And and having a conversation with David Fincher was a pretty good excuse to sit down and watch it. So I did. And uh, and I I fell in love with it. I I actually at the time didn't have uh, really much of a desire to work either on another political story uh, or in television because of the huge time commitment that it takes up. But uh, but uh, I immediately started to have all sorts of ideas, how to Americanize it, how to make it our own, how to expand it and deepen it. Uh, so I got on the phone with Fincher. We shared a lot of the same instincts, uh, decided that it would be fun to team up and work on this. Uh, uh, also on that phone call was Eric Roth and Josh John and two of the other producers. Uh, and uh, for the next year, I worked on the first episode. Uh, and during that process- Alone? Or did you get the team together by then? No, alone. Yeah. I wrote it. I mean, by myself. But You're out in L.A., I think. No, I was here in New York. Okay, okay. Yeah, and uh, of course, as I w- finished a draft, I would share it with David and Eric and Josh, and would jump on the phone and talk about it. But it was very casual, just the just me at the computer, and then the four of us getting on the phone every once in a while. And somewhere along the way, uh, uh, we started engaging with Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. Uh, David, of course, had a relationship with Kevin going back to seven. And uh, and they produced the social network together, uh, and, uh, and and David knew Robin as well. So we slipped them the script and and uh, engaged with them. And and luckily for us, they came on board. So we had our two stars, and we had a script. Uh, and then it was time to find a home. Let's hear a little bit of Robin Wright in her iconic performance before House of Cards. Will you marry me? I'd make a good husband, Jenny. You would, Forrest. But you won't marry me. You don't want to marry me. Why don't you love me, Jenny? I'm not a smart man. But I know what love is. That's Tom Hanks as Forrest Gump and Robin Wright as Jenny. You've said... And well, you've and ri- of course, uh, Forrest Gump was written by one of our EPs, uh, Eric Roth. Uh, and, and I worked at the Shady Oak 
movie theater it was one of my very first job in St. Louis, and it was one screen, and, and for a couple months, Forrest Gump showed. I've seen that movie many, many times. And the other huge iconic role uh, for Robin Wright, uh, of course, was The Princess Bride. Of course. Written by a, a friend and mentor of mine, William Goldman, uh, the extraordinary screenwriter. Inconceivable. Yeah. Well, and I know Wally Shawn as well. Um, Wally Shawn's the best. produce a movie uh, that he and Andre Gregory are doing with Jonathan Demme. So, small world. Uh, so small world. Uh, you've written, and your your partners have said that you you got your first choice on all on all the major cast members with Kevin and Robin. How when you're thinking of Ian Richardson and the other ca- members of the original cast, uh, what are you thinking you're really going to need to bring this show to life, whether it's at HBO or Netflix? Uh, well, I, the, every show comes down to its cast. Uh, all the scripts, all the cameras, all the crew, the building of the sets, that's all there simply so that we can uh, uh, film uh, actors behaving on screen. That's what people tune in to watch or stream in to watch. Uh, They want to see people uh, going through real dramatic emotional moments uh, with each other in ways that are compelling and exciting. Uh, So uh, the most important decisions you can possibly make on any show is who are going to be those people that are saying the words and that you're going to put in the room together. So we put a huge amount of energy and time and thought into who did we want for each of these roles. And uh, and we and as you know, Fincher has said often in the press, and I've repeated, we we got everyone that we wanted, uh, which is very rare. Uh, usually some sort of scheduling thing gets in the way or someone doesn't connect with the script, and, and we got very, very lucky. Kevin has said that uh, he's not sure he fully knows who Francis Underwood is yet. Uh, that may come in season two. Uh, he says that in the way that he talks directly to the camera, certainly a device from the original show, but uh, that's to be interpreted as this rare opportunity to hear Frank talk to his best friend, the only person who he might trust to say the things that he does. What has it been like after we hear a few of Frank's signature asides to come up with those the aphorisms the diction the the sayings that that congressman underwood has let's hear a little bit from frank the sentinel south carolina's premier military college they taught me the values of honor duty and respect they also hazed me tried to break me in senior year nearly expelled me when i volunteered for a senate race and my studies suffered but that didn't stop them from soliciting a hefty sum for their new library 30 years later how quickly poor grades are forgotten in the shadow of power and wealth. I'm not going to lie. I despise children. There, I've said it. As we used to say in Gaffney, never slap a man while he's chewing tobacco. How do you, how do you create Frank talking to the camera, and what's that all about for your audience? Uh, it's, it's an organic process. Uh, we try a lot of different things out, uh, and, and um, you know, a lot of it comes out of speaking with Kevin. Uh, when I wrote the the first episode, I was working a little bit in a void uh, because we hadn't cast Kevin yet, and, and it was all in the imagination. But one of the beautiful things of working on a television show is that you're shooting it over the course of eight or nine months, and you're spending a lot of time with your cast. Uh, so you can have a real dialogue with them, um, and uh, there's a real give and take. And, and as you watch what they're doing on screen, uh, it becomes apparent what's working and what's not, and, and certainly they have thoughts about that. So I, I think a lot of those asides came out of um, 
responding to what Kevin was doing as much as uh, trying to think of what he should do. Uh, and, uh, and every once in a while, you know, he'll throw a glance at the camera that doesn't even involve words. Uh, and those will be moments that he just finds and chooses himself. Uh, and so, you know, you, you have to walk a, a very sort of careful line with the direct addresses. Uh, you want them to allow the audience to have access and intimacy with your hero, but you don't want them to weigh things down or break up the action too much. Uh, and, and you want them to be clever and fun and entertaining, but you don't want them to feel sort of clever in a manufactured way. And sometimes we get it, you know, we nail it better than other times. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to work with, and, and I think it elevates the drama. So, while Netflix allowed you to binge on House of Cards, we're breaking up our conversation with showrunner Bo Willimon into two chapters. Curious to hear how the story ends? Tune in next week for Chapter 2 of The Washington Phenomenon Built on a House of Cards. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.